This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to Living with Reality, a podcast featuring archive teachings and modern conversations with Dr. Robert Svoboda, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Living with Reality explores Ayurveda and other wisdom traditions of India, which Dr. Svoboda has been studying for nearly 50 years. For more information, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dr. Svoboda. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A. Robert. Hi. TD. Ma'am. You guys have known each other for quite a while now. How did we meet? Oh, Uh, I... Wasn't it at a yoga journal conference? In Estes Park. In Estes Park. That's right, for the first time we met there. Can't recall which year that was. 1836, 1836. Possibly. It was a little later than that. It could have been in the last century, though. I believe it was. Uh, yeah, must it might have been. Probably 98-ish or 99-ish something like or that, something yeah. like that. So a good 20 years. Yeah. And you guys both love to sing, so I thought you might talk about what singing does for you or mm. what you've learned through it. Well, I'm sure we have very different answers about that. My, my first response would be say, I'll ask him when he comes in, <laughs> if he ever comes back, what he learned. But mostly, I don't even know what I learned. I just learned to sing better and more fully and uh, more completely and more intensely, more with more integrity and more heart and more sincerity. And uh, able to leave more of the mind stuff behind thought stuff and everything as I go into the chanting. But I don't know if I've learned anything. <laughs> well, that's all useful information. Um, I fortunately um, generally sing for myself instead of for out in public. And um, I have always enjoyed singing to myself. And uh, I have always appreciated when it has been, when, when in fact I've been able to actually experience someone singing through me instead of me trying to sing. And uh, happily over as the years have gone by, it's been um, 
uh, I've been uh, increasingly able to do that. And uh, I feel that I was, uh, I, I wish that I had been, um, had spent more time actually trying to be trained to sing properly. Um, I was fortunate that I learned at least a little bit of um, Sanskrit chanting properly, which um, has a different, on the one hand, a different flavor from singing. And on the other hand, it, um, I, in, in, from my perspective, arose as a very specialized form of singing. So I bowed down to the goddess of song. So you've talked about singing being free. Can you talk well, about that? Well, Swami Gyananand used to talk about that. Swami Gyananand, who passed away a few years ago after living for more than 60 years in India as a sadhu. He came originally from Switzerland and in his early 20s moved to India and was there ever since. Um, and um, his philosophy was, yes, every time you speak, um, you're using vak shakti and you're you're creating things and um inevitably there will be it's a karma and you're um uh will have to pay for all those karmas one way or another but and when he was talking about singing he was talking about not necessarily singing uh ordinary songs but singing 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 songs that relate to um that relate to reality, the gods and the goddesses and the supreme uh, being. And uh, so his philosophy was, yes, that um, singing is free because it is, if you're doing it properly, in fact, you're, it's the devatad that is singing through you. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that you feel that when you sing, something is singing through you, someone or some being singing through you. When feel, things are going well. <laughs> do you feel that way when you're on stage? <clears throat> I feel that way. I mean, I know that that's the case, whether I feel it or not. Maharaji doesn't necessarily send you a telegram and tell you what he's going to do. He just does it. And he keeps doing it, regardless of how I feel about it. So I could be having a very bad night, and people in, in the who are singing with me can be having a great night. It has nothing to do with me at all. And uh, he just, he transmits through me, uses my, this meat puppet to uh, transmit. And uh, I just try to get with the program as much as I can, stay in harmony with it and not interfere <laughs> as much as I can. Which means, you know, I have to take care of the music and the sound, and I have to take care of my health, and I have to take care of my instrument, and I have to get there on time and do a whole lot of things in order to be in a position to let it happen. So it's, um, yeah, it's a great blessing. And do you, let me ask you, when you sing, uh, do you... How do you feel? Do you listen to your own voice? 
or do you uh, do you ha stay like in an awareness of the whole thing? Uh, it's an interesting thing. I, I I do my best not to listen to my own voice, right. but to in fact, and often it is the case that it's I'm able to that the voice takes care of itself and uh -huh. I don't have to listen to it because it's doing what it needs to do. And uh -huh. Then I can witness it much more effectively. It's interesting because very recently I noticed, in fact, since the uh, health issues I had a couple of months ago, I noticed, see, other people are hearing my voice and they're having all kinds of whatever. I'm not usually listening to my voice as such, the actual physical voice. I'm hearing it in my head, you know. Yes. But I noticed lately as I as I enter more deeply into the actual sound that's coming out of this, uh, it, it's a very interesting experience. It's different. It's very, it's as if it's... Uh, It's as if I'm I'm entering into the sound in a very full way. I, I don't know how to explain. There's no mind images that come. There's nothing like that. It's just it's of being really present in that sound. It's but it, I mean I've only been singing for so many years. But all of a sudden, you know, I'm going. Oh wow! I should listen to me too. <laughs> That's nice. Wow. <laughs> so another thing you guys have in common is you've had these really powerful gurus and mentors. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. It's such a special relationship. So maybe talk about some stories, mm. you know, to give someone a, a sense of what it's like to have that relationship if they don't. Yeah, there was that little Lila that went on for a few years with the physical body, but that was, it, that was 40 years ago, 43, 44 years ago. Let me see, 46 years ago. But still, it's so present and so real and so um, all-encompassing. Um, well, I'm... I, uh, I, I, I feel exactly the same way that, yes, it's true that Vimalananda is not present in the, in this reality, but, uh, and the, the physical, physical reality, but he certainly is still very present to me in, uh, in a very, uh, palpable way, sometimes more imminent and palpable and sometimes less, but mm -hmm. I, I never feel like I'm far away from his energy field and you know one of the ways that that has manifested is that um not just being not just sensing his um presence but um for example Neem Karoli Baba was one of the very few um spiritual people in India about whom he had a good opinion and he had a very high opinion of Neem Karoli Baba. And um, although um, I never had the privilege of having darshan of Babaji, other than um, other than going to his place in Vrindavan, where I always feel I've 
have had darshan on the parikrama marg whenever yeah. I stopped there. Yeah. Um, other than that, I've been ex- blessed to have a long association with you and with Shamdas and, yeah. and some association with Ramdas and other people who have been. So it's, it's, I mean, it's been a, 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 a benefit to me um, that uh, not only, not only him directly, but other people uh, as in this way. And, yeah. and I had a direct relationship and he never called himself a guru. He always had us salute his, uh, we called him Guru Maharaj, but uh, mm-hmm. he was uh, uh, Ra- uh, Ram Vishwambardasji, a sadhu, mm-hmm. very old sadhu who lived in, uh, in uh, the eastern part of India. And so um, it was, it, it was, uh, uh, an excellent blessing, not only for me, not only to have Vimalananda's presence, but to have the presence of these other mm. spiritual people that he was connected to, that he respected, and who have been, who I've been privileged to have beneficial connections with as well. So, yeah. um, there are so many things I have to thank him for, and mm. starting, I would say, with with this. Just reading a book uh, with Ramana Maharshi's teachings. One of the one of the things in it just killed me. It was it said um, it's talking about the grace, how grace is always you always here, and the great grace is actually the presence of the great being, and. It's becoming when you become completely, uh, totally aware of that presence. This is this is the moment when grace can, you know, flow through. Mm. Uh, and but it's basically saying that the be the great being himself is the grace. The presence of that great being is grace. And when you become aware of that, as you become more aware of that, and more, it's that grace flows more. So uh, yeah. It's a beautiful way to say it, and yeah. we expect nothing less from oh. someone of his caliber. Maharaji always said, Ram Nam Karnase, Sabhuda Hojat. Yes. Over and over he said that, you know, from going on repeating the name of God, everything is accomplished, everything is made full and complete. He said this over and over again to us. And, you know, you know, now fifty years later, I might just be starting to actually believe it. You know, I mean, I heard it a million times, but your sanskaras, your basana of your of your mind, just prevent you from actually grokking something. You know, it's you don't get much vote about that really, because the you're getting swept away by your own nonsense constantly and but little by little i guess that gets a little bit less and you go oh what what does that really mean you know but that really means something and it just changes you just like oh you know like that it's beautiful that he would use that word purna ram ram nam karnese purna ho jate 
um, because he could have used a lot of other words and Purna means complete or full. Yeah. There's that, you know, Purnamadeva, yeah. Purnamidam. Yeah. So the, the, the all is present in the all and from yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, when I think of the word Purna, it, something that is, that is not yet uh, in a state of being completed, like one's own karmas and one's own personality and so on, that if you will just move ahead, yeah. God will get all the karmas to align properly yeah. and he will complete for you everything you need to complete and then you can actually move ahead and do something meaningful. Yeah. Instead of just having to have all of your karmas land on top of you and react to them. Yeah. I once asked Siddhima, this two things I want to say. First thing I said, Ma, you know, should I meditate or should I sing? And she said, Krishnadas, in 40 years with Maharaji, not once did he ask me to meditate. He said, do japa, you know, remember, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. And Maharaji said, she's quoted him as saying, the, the more subtle or higher states of consciousness cannot be brought about by the use of your personal will. Yes, that's a yeah. And then she said, "Well, what do you like to do?" Uh, well, you know, it never occurred. My mother told me if I liked it, it wasn't good for me. But this mother told me if I liked it, it was good for me. <laughs> so the other thing was how fortunate that you had both. How fortunate, yes, <laughs> that I had both. Yeah, and certainly one after the other. The mother was right the better, right line. Yeah. So Maharaji once said that he had the keys to the mind. He used to tease us. He used to say, I'll turn your minds against me. And we said, don't do that, Mama. Don't do that. And he laughed, you know. So I said, Ma, you know, Maharaji said he has the keys to the mind. So that means that I am exactly where he wants me to be at every moment. So what is the, where, where does, so that's grace. So where does personal effort come in? She, is it, is it all grace or is effort required? She said, Krishna does. It's all grace, but you have to act like it isn't. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. This is a debate that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. In South India, they they describe it in as either the Markata Marga mm -hmm. or the Marjara Marga. Marga means path yeah. or road. Markata means um, monkey and marjara means cat. Huh. So if you're a kitten, you don't do anything whatsoever. The mother cat picks you up by the scruff of its neck. It puts you over here and then it moves you over here and then it moves you over there. Your job is to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And if you do try to do something, you'll interfere with the situation. Right. If you're a monkey baby, however, you need to hold on to your mother as she hops through the trees. Otherwise, you're going to land unhappily somewhere. Oh, yeah. wow. So this debate has been going on. And there is, of course, no answer to this debate because... Who, 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 who is to answer? Who's going to answer? <laughs> there is no one who's going to answer. So uh, I think that uh, Siddhima's uh, concept is... Uh, an excellent way to bring these two things together. There is only 
Yeah. There is only grace. And, but the very fact of attempting to say there is only grace is to some degree disconnecting yourself from that because you're asserting it. Yeah. But I think with someone like her and any great being, they can make those statements without having to disconnect. Definitely. Within the, they can make those statements and, and perform actions in, within that presence without ever leaving it. Yeah, it's just the, it's the, and Ramon Maharshi said the same thing in this about effort. He said, yes, it's all grace, but you know, the effort is required to remember, to, to see, to look. You must... So can you both talk a little bit about when you first met Maharaji and when you met Ramonanda, what impressed you? Like we were talking earlier, Robert and I, about Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, his first experience of him and how he felt mm. like there was something there that he mm-hmm. wanted to learn about. You met him? You met him. Um, I, I didn't ever interact with uh, him personally, uh, but I was around him for several days at the Kala Chakra in Bodh Gaya in 1974. Oh, my. Beautiful. And uh, and I mean, I had no, I had been to Swambunath and Bodhnath and so on. I met, you know, some the standard Tibetan yeah. uh, Lama, but Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche was a completely different mm. level of absolutely connection to reality. Yeah, I never met him either, but and I. Those, I have two big regrets that I spent my 80s doing not a lot of nonsense in the 1980s. And I missed Dujim Rinpoche and I missed mm. Dupa They were both here in the States many times and I, I was oblivious. However, about six months ago, I had this dream. I was in Dugo Kenshi Rinpoche and I were riding in the back of a car together. We we're being driven. He was about to give a program in some Tibetan temple. And we were driving, being driven there, and we were hanging out. It was like totally at ease, relaxed, right? And we get to the place, and another lama comes and opens the door for him, and he gets out, and he's help, being helped to walk in. And then this other lama comes to escort me, like, to the back of the temple, the, the room. And this other lama was also a manifestation of Dogo Kenzurumaji. And he gave me a mantra as we were walking into the house, which I can't remember. So then we get into the room in the back where Dugo Kensi is standing, and he's, there's a table like this, and he's, he's standing at the table, and we come from here. And the minute we walk in, he looks at the Lama and said, you gave him the wrong mantra. And he goes, he's from this lineage. And I, I look down, this is a picture of Hanuman. And then he gave me a mantra, which I can't remember. <laughs> Oh, but I, I'll never forget when I looked down at the picture, it was a, it was a picture of Hanuman. He said, oh, he's from this lineage. <laughs> God. Yeah. I, I, I wish I had, you know, just seeing him from, okay, a distance of just a few feet, no yeah. doubt, but still it was, it was a eye-opening experience, yeah. literally. Have you, you know, they made a beautiful movie. Yes. Have you seen that? Beautiful Moon, in fact. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It oh, it was fantastic. I saw it in Australia. I um, I wish 
I wish very much I had I had the opportunity once to have darshan of Ananda Maima mm-hmm. in Pune. And uh-huh. there was some reason I think I had something to some other thing that was quite essential. I thought, well, she's I will get the opportunity again. And in fact, I never got the opportunity. Mm. So we used to see her all the time in Vrindavan. She had a temple right down the road from where Maharaj, when he kicked us out, we'd go see her. Mm. And then we come back and he'd go, you went to see Ma? Did she feed you? No, I feed you. <laughs> Mr. Tuari was with them. My Indian father was with them, was with Maharaj the very first time that he and Nandamai met this mm-hmm. life. It was in the railroad flats just below Nanital. There's a, uh-huh. they call them the railroad flats. And Maharaji walked into the room where she was and they looked at each other and they cracked up. They looked at This is what you look like now? Ah! <laughs> yeah. They, they, they knew each other very well. So I guess I'm interested in hearing, you know, more stories about Maharaji or Vilananda too, and how you perceive them as, I mean, you're talking about it, but how they had this presence, like what we were talking about with Bill Wilkins and Naboche, what drew you to them initially? I met Maharaji when I met Ramdas. Mm. I walked into the room where Ramdas was sitting in the winter of 68, 69, not sure exactly what month. He had just come back from India a few months before. And the minute I walked into the room, I knew that whatever it was I was looking for was real and it was in the world. I didn't know what it was, but I, I knew you could find it. It was real. And I later recognized that this was Maharaj. And then I traveled with Ramdas for a year and a half or so around America. Then, of course, I went to India and I met Maharaji. Uh, at first, I was so not confused, but I was, I couldn't wrap my, 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 my head around because he was huge to me. He was everywhere. He was, he was up until that moment. You know, he was with me always, everywhere I went. It was just, how could all that fit in that body? I was like, my mind is like, I, wait a minute, you know. And he just looked at us and laughed, you know what I mean? It was, <laughs> I got over it. <laughs> I think in my case, I, it was only after I was like, once I got to be, 19, I realized that yes, there was something there of that was real in the world. Mm. And then I started looking for it and I ran into it here and there, or it ran into me. Mm. And then um, once I met Vimalananda, it suddenly became much more real and much more consistent and much more with greater momentum and, dra- and dragging me more effectively in the direction they needed to be dragged. Drag. But there was a lot of love there, too. I mean, we can, we oh. can read that in Nagora, like, between you and Vimalananda. Yes. He treated you like a son. He did. 
which certainly uh, meant that um, there was always there was always love between us, though um, I being a rebellious kind of person, there were certainly moments where um, things were not completely floral. <laughs> no, they were florid. They were florid, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, my mother came to India, you know, ostensibly to, to see if Maharaji's nose was really the same as her father's nose. That's how he got her there. And, and of course, she said, told my sister she was going to bring me home, you know, which, of course, wasn't happening. Maharaji looks at her and says, he's not your son, he's mine. Now, I knew what he meant, but I can only imagine my poor mother, what she what you know, she thought he was taking me away from her. Yeah. But, of course, uh, that wasn't the case. So. Vimalananda was much kinder to my own mother, who came in 1979 mm. when she was 63 mm. on her own in yeah. India for five weeks. And wow. he put on an excellent show of being a completely normal person because <laughs> she was concerned that I was in some sort of cult. And yeah. He found that, yes, I was in a horse racing cult, but this was not a yeah. cult that was likely to affect me on a in uh, a, a, a you know dragging me completely into the world of gambling for example yeah, right. it was something it was a different thing so he he very kindly uh, uh, displayed to her uh, the side of him that um, allowed her to be very confident that I was in good hands. Well, Maharaji also was very kind to my mother. And I asked her to bring a sweater for him, the best sweater she could find. You can see it now in all the pictures he's, where he's wearing this blue blanket. He's wearing this red turtleneck, that maroon turtleneck. That's from her. He's, he, he took it right away. He put it right on. And he said to the, you miserable people, you don't bring me anything. Look at this woman. She came from so far away and dragged this to me. You, you know, like, and you know, mine. You know, he was so sweet to her. Really, he was. And uh, he said, will you give him money? Will you give him money? And she said, well, I, I want to work. No, don't worry, he'll work. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> he was very kind to her. Very kind. And so we we spent about she was probably in India maybe I don't know, maybe ten days, maybe two weeks. We spent about most of that time up in the hills and went to Kenshi a few times and she you spent a few hours with Maharaji. And the last day, we, we we were leaving for the plains. We came to say goodbye to the temple. And then we came out of the temple and walked over the bridge, across the river, and up onto the road. And we were getting in the car, and she turned and looked back down into the temple. And Maharaji was just sitting on the tucket, you know. And she fell apart. She completely, she broke down crying, weeping, uncontrollably. I had to catch her mm. and help her into the car. She just totally fell apart. And she never knew what that was. You know, not a, but when, and she had a very rough life. She was an alcoholic. Even after that time in India, she was still 
and hospitalized a couple of times after that. Mm. Eventually, she was clean, last 25 years of her life, 30 years. But whenever a friend would come over to her house or with me or this year and would ask her, what was it like when you went to India? It was like another person manifested. She, mm. she just got glowing and then back down again. How did that impact her, the way she felt about you being in India and what you were doing? I think she accepted it pretty well. You know, I mean, she saw that, although, so one morning I was in the temple with Maharaji and I had been sick. I was coming from hepatitis. And one day I didn't come out of my room at all and I didn't have darshan, I didn't see him. So the next day I came out of my room and I pranamed and he looks at me and said, you were sick yesterday? I said, yeah, Baba. He said, when is your mother coming? I said, my mother? Coming to India? And then he didn't say anything. Later in the day, we got a, tele a, a, a message from the Evelyn Hotel, our friends in Nanital. My mother had called. She wants to talk to me. So I went to Nanital and I booked the call. You know, it took like yes. about 24 hours. Yes. <clears throat> and she said, I want to come to India. So I said to her, like, if my daughter said she was going to India, and she, or if I said I went... I said to her what I wouldn't wish on anybody. I said to her, I have to ask my guru. I can't imagine you know, what she would, what she thought when I said, because I was flipped. So then I went back to Kenji and I said, Baba, she wants to come. Tell her to come. Okay. And she came. So, uh, so she knew, she, but she, she saw that, she was treated so well by all the old devotees. Everybody treated her like she was a goddess, you know, that she was just taking such good care of. So she wasn't worried about me at all. But what did she think? Well, she used to come to the kirtan. Sometimes people would pick her up coming into the city from Long Island and they'd bring her to the... So at one time she was, the chanting was going on, everybody was up and dancing and she turned to the, the friend who brought her and she said, look at those women dancing in front of him. The it, 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 it looks like they're having an orgasm. <laughs> so that's kind of what she thought. I don't know what she thought. But, you know, I was a good son, so she, she accepted that. I was pretty much. Yes, she could see nothing bad had happened to me. I was still yes. a good little boy. Yes, that's the beauty of maternal love. After uh, the first Agora book was published with the blood drinking goddess standing right. on the funeral pyre on the cover. My parents made it a point to sell several copies to their associates in the Baptist church. And um, my mother said to me one day and her, she didn't have much of a Texas accent, though if she was around a lot of Texans, it would get stronger. She would say, you know, Robert, I tried to read that book and I just couldn't understand it. <laughs> but if you wrote it, it must be okay. Ah, that's so nice. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, she and, I mean, she, my father liked Vimal Ananda. He came and spent a Christmas with me and him, uh, my parents and Dr. Lod and me. And oh, wow. They were living in New Mexico. And, um, uh, they all liked one another, but it's they certainly had no clue as yeah. to exactly yeah. who he was or yeah. what he was doing. Right. He was just 
having a good influence on me, which they appreciated, yes, yes. and was very urbane and easy to get along. Uh, and might have been a Hindu, but was they were very genuine Christians, and he was a serious devotee of Jesus Christ. And so was Maharaji. Absolutely. When he talked about Jesus, it was another thing. Yeah. I mean, when he talked about Jesus, it made, when he spoke of Krishna and Hanuman, okay. But when he talked about Jesus, he just like, it was unbearable. His eyes would close and tears would come out of his eyes. It was like, whoa, what is this? It's amazing. And it wasn't just because we were Westerners. No. You know, it, wasn't, it had nothing no. to do with that. No. Yeah. He said, I go to church every Sunday. <laughs> really? How do you do that? <laughs> Being over here and, you know, in the temple on Sunday. So I'm curious if you guys could just, there's a lot of people listening who probably are wondering, you know. What are we talking about? No, no. no. Who's my guru? Or how do I find a guru? Or uh -huh. how do I find a saintly person to serve? It seems like less people are either out and about being obvious about it or... Mm -hmm. Or more people are out and about who are pretending. Or pretending. To be. So how do you yeah. how do you determine that if somebody is a saintly person or not? And how do you find somebody? And do you need somebody? Everybody needs somebody. You go first. Um, Vimalananda used to say that you should make it a point to go to any saints who come to town. Of course, in India, saints are coming to town all the time or <laughs> people who claim to be saints. Yeah. And he said, you always need to, should always expect that the people who claim to be saints, the vast majority of them are um, either simply deluded or he would use the word labard, which means uh, actively con men, you know, trying to con people. Yeah. And so he said the best thing to do is um, go and sit and try to still your mind as much as possible. And then once your mind is still, what arises in your, well, first of all, does it easily become still or does it become more agitated? And if it becomes still, is it still and perhaps you have a, a your your mind is directed more in the direction of spiritual things uh and then this is he's whether he is a to what degree he is a saint or not is one thing but his his or her influence on you at least at that moment is a positive thing and you take advantage of that as long as it's positive if on the other hand you go and sit in front of somebody and he or she whatever they're saying, the influence they have on you is that you start to be more worldly and more interested in making money or being famous or something. He said, please flee so that you are not exposed to them any more than no matter how much everybody else thinks they're big and mighty and impressive. And perhaps they are, but they're not for you. They're not having that effect on you. So it's he, he was very <clears throat> emphatic about the fact that someone might have a very good effect on one person and not at all a good effect on someone else. And of course, his Guru Maharaj was a good example of that, not because Guru Maharaj was 
he was completely spiritual, but he often felt like people needed to have all their bad karmas come out at one time, Ooh. which for most people was too much. Too much. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I, in fact, I don't even think that Westerners are capable of even that much. Uh, most Westerners in, in the West now who haven't been, you know, exposed to this stuff in another way are even capable of. Uh, well, first of all, no one can know another person's state of mind or realization. Well, and you're saying Westerners, but unfortunately, you know, as like you, I travel around the world. I think most Indians, I think most Asians, I don't think most people, most, I don't think yeah. most human beings nowadays who even, well, maybe not one, but two generations ago, yeah. I felt very confident that, you know, the many people I would, even ordinary people I would meet in India, they had their own personal yeah. spiritual paths and they, they were... They were able to, to see the difference between what was genuine and what is not. But Some degree, yeah. I don't see that so much anymore, anywhere, much less, I mean, here, but over there or anywhere else. Yeah. Frankly. yeah. But what we're talking about is how does a person need a physical guru and, and how to find one and etc. What, what people have to realize is that guru doesn't, guru is not outside of you ever. Uh, and everyone has that lineage comes from a lineage at some point and has in, on some deep level a connection whether or not it's the right thing for one to have a physical guru not just a teacher but a guru that's up to the guru and when you understand that the only agenda that a real guru can have is compassion for you and kindness and to help you then if it's not happening the way you want it to, it's still for the best. That's a hard thing for people to, to digest, that they need to look at their lives and they need to take their whole life as their teacher and as their guru. If they don't have a physical manifestation of that love right now, that doesn't mean they're not connected. It just means they have to look at it in a different way right now. And it doesn't mean that they won't find that connection on the physical plane later, but they can't, it's not to be waiting around. One must look at one's heart and, and listen, learn to listen to one's own intuition anyway, or guru or no guru, physical, on the physical plane or not. One must learn to trust one's own heart as to what to do. And Lord Dattatre had 24 gurus, none of whom knew that they were acting as his guru. Mm. He experienced whatever it was he was experiencing, and he took the lessons and he acted on them and he moved ahead. Mm. But, but the lesson came through that bird or that element or whatever it was that it came through, and he respected that vehicle as his guru. But and, as, and he respected his own intuition. Because that was what was allowing him yeah. to connect to that guru. And so Vimalananda also used to say, I mean, your guru, whoever your guru is, can come to you in any way, through a plant, through an animal, through a random person on the street, very often through somebody who you are sure could not have an effect on you as a guru. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember once I was walking across Connaught Place with Rambas, and uh, a uh, one of those jumbo jet liners had landed in Delhi way back when, and all those those young people from the Midwest with the bow ties and white yeah. socks had you yeah. know, you know, and they came up. Have you met so and so, the avatar of the age? You know, the Rambas looked at this guy and said, "You wouldn't know a guru if you." Stepped on them in the street, you know, the kid was like that. <laughs> you know, everybody, the point is that everybody wants love. Everybody wants to be loved. And we're pretty much willing to do anything to get that love, which means that it's a crapshoot whether you're going to actually find a real teacher or not, because you want anybody who pets. I was in a cult myself because this person would pet me on the head and tell me I was a good little boy and I needed that so badly. I gave up my own I my own my own sense of right and wrong. I buried it to take what this person so just so I could get a pat on the head. So it you know one has to trust oneself. And that's one thing that Vimal and Nanda very much consistently always emphasized that whatever you learn from anywhere, anywhere, it has to be evaluated by you in that according to your sense of, of right or wrong. It has to resonate with you if it is going to do you some good. And if it, if it does not resonate with you, then you need to ask questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So both Maharaji and Vimalananda had a very strong relationship with Hanuman, and so do you. Both. Hmm. So I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit about Hanuman and what he means to you. Maharaj used to say, they say Hanuman's a monkey. Ah. <laughs> he would laugh. Bandarchi. Ah. I'm, I'm not sure I can describe that just because uh i don't know for me it, it's not like i it's i have a very clear perspective but it's not like that perspective is one that you can read about in the ramayana or you can it's sort of a very and and for me it, uh, he, possibly because i spend a lot of time working with people's prana Vimalananda always emphasized that he is he is prana and and he is he's he's the simultaneously the prana that is running the entire universe the prana that is running you that very prana that uh is the supreme reality in mobile form and he's all of these things simultaneously mm. so the i mean the it, i it's hard for me to do any better than say that just because he's not it, it, many things uh, are very difficult to describe in Waikariwani in externalized human language because they chop things up when you should be able to explain rather how 
the different manifestations of a being like that in different realities actually all connect to one another because they're all coming from that same reality. But that's not easy to talk about in human speech. Not at all. However, I think we experience a being like Hanuman uh, as all-encompassing love for all beings. And if I know anything about Hanuman at all, and I don't believe that I know very much, it's only because of being with Maharaji, who was treated by his devotees as if he was Hanuman himself, and who certainly was always, the name of Ram was always on his lips, his tongue was always moving, no matter what he was doing, he was going on. And uh, it, the experience of being with him was to be with somebody who was always completely merged with the whole universe, and yet fully active and fully spacious. And everything happened inside of him. It wasn't as if he was doing something, but it happened perfectly inside of him. It was as everything was being orchestrated within this vast presence in which we all live. And um, the feeling of being with that being was, it's like you say, it's very hard to put it in words. Well, and just, I mean, I was thinking about that. You're using the word orchestrate. And of course, it would not be unusual when you think of the word orchestrate to think of an orchestra conductor up there. Exactly. When, when in fact, what was happening is it was being, it's not like yeah. he was no. trying to consciously orchestrate no. it. It was orchestrating itself through him. And just by virtue of manifesting in him, things were manifesting externally because they were reflecting what was happening on the inside of him. So yes, he was orchestrating yeah, but it, but nobody no, was doing it. Not orchestrating. Yeah, there was no doer. There, there was, was no, no everything doer was being involved. done. Yes. And of course this is the essence of Hanuman. And he never had the sense of being the doer. The doer. He knew Ram did everything. It just looked like he was doing it. But he knew that. Although there's some funny moments in the Ramayana where he has to talk himself down. You know, he gets like when he goes into the harem to look for Sita, he said, wait a minute, I'm sinning here. I'm looking at all these women. This is terrible. Ram's going to kill me. What am I? No, wait a second. Wait a second. Chill, chill yourself out, dude. You know, where I'm, I'm doing, I didn't do this to get off of my own thing. I, I'm only doing this to serve Ram. It's got to be okay. It's got to be okay. Okay. All right. Let me go back. So that's interesting. At least I think that's in Vamiki. I'm not sure. I don't think Tulsi Das would ever put anything like that in the Ram Charitamanas. Probably not, but yes, it, there that description. Th there is an extensive description of um, of how he is uh, going through the looking yeah. only for Sita. But oh. here are these women who must yeah. are mostly undressed and yeah. they're lying around, yeah. and he's and he realizes, wait a minute, where am I? What am I doing here? I, you know, this is terrible. I'm sinning. He said, No, I'm only doing this in the servants of mom. There was a description in this one book written by some Swami, I forget what it was, how Hanumanji always saw 
wherever he went, he saw the, the color of Ram. It all happened mm. in some, Ram's color, mm. which is something that these eyes don't see. No. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a different color. Yeah. There was a book called The Lo Hanuman Love Trance Being. It was, huh. you must have seen it. It was around for a while. This Swami came to America and hanging around for a while, and then he went back. I forget his name. My friend translated it for him, or, or edited it for him. Uh, a love trance being. It's some very strange stuff in there, but it was very cool. Yeah. One time, somebody brought a poster to Maharaji from a calendar, and he showed Hanuman uh meditating like this with Ra Rama like this. And Maharaji said to Dada, the devotee said, Dada, Hanumanji's lost. Hanumanji's lost. I'm also lost. Well thank you both. Mm -hmm. I think we can wrap it up there unless you have something else you'd like to say. Well, we could go on for like another three days if you want to brought some coffee or chai or we could probably keep going. But this chapter is fine. <laughs>